Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. Hello and welcome to the first of our two-part season finale of Naked Oceans. I'm Sarah Caster-Perry and in this episode we're taking a whistle-stop tour of the history of life in our seas, from the earliest forms right up until the present day, taking in some of the big milestones and creatures along the way. We'll be dipping our toes into everything from bacteria to ancient marine reptiles and early human fishing to deep sea exploration. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans. We begin our tale in the seas of the Precambrian, around 3.5 billion years ago. Back then, the Earth was a very different place. Colder, with its much younger sun and with an atmosphere devoid of oxygen, but packed full of so-called greenhouse gases like methane and carbon dioxide. The oceans also had no oxygen and no obvious signs of life. However... What you would find in the shallow waters around the margins of a lot of the oceans is the evidence of life in the form of basically living rocks. Those living rocks, as described by Ken McNamara, director of the Cedric Museum of Earth Sciences in Cambridge, are known as stromatolites and are thought to be the first evidence of life on Earth. Amazingly, they're structures that we still see today in shallow coastal areas and lakes. These chromatolites are basically big mounds. Um, I always tend to liken them to rotten concrete cauliflowers, is what they look like. Other ones form just big round domed masses. So when you go back in the fossil record, what we find um, just layers of sediment which periodically will form a little dome. And the dome might only be, in some cases, very small, just say, 10 centimetres high. Other times they can form big dome structures um, some metres high. And in terms of, well, how do you know that these structures represent life? There's been a lot of debate about it, particularly the early ones. But nobody can come up with a logical way to explain how these things will form in a sediment other than by the activity of organisms. The organisms responsible for building stromatolites today are photosynthesizing microbes known as cyanobacteria. And just like their modern relatives, the ancient stromatolite builders not only produce food and energy directly from sunlight, but also another compound particularly important for other forms of life. One of the arguments for the appearance of oxygen in the atmosphere and this major change from a world, an anaerobic world, where there's no oxygen in the oceans, no oxygen in the atmosphere to oxygenated oceans and oxygenated atmosphere is down to these cyanobacteria, both the ones that were constructing stromatolites, but also other cyanobacteria that weren't stromatolite producers but would still have been around. So the early inhabitants of the oceans may have played a key role in making Earth habitable for life as we know it. 
But it's not until around three billion years later that signs of more complex life starts to show up in the fossil record during a period called the Ediacaran. The first organisms we see in, at the base of the Ediacaran period are mostly algal things, little filaments and bush-shaped algal fronds. They're around 600 to 580 million years old. Alex Liu from the University of Cambridge. And then around 580 million years ago, just after a final large glacial event that seems to have been global in, in scale, we have organisms that can reach up to two metres or so in diameter or, or length, seen first in deep water settings, deep marine oceans around Newfoundland and in the UK today, so around Leicestershire in Charnwood Forest. And then as we go into younger rocks, we start seeing them in places like the White Sea in Russia and in Australia in the Flinders Ranges. And those are in quite shallow marine environments. So why the sudden appearance of diversity in the fossil record? Well, one argument is that the oxygen levels in the atmosphere and the oceans reached a threshold level which allowed organisms to evolve to become larger and more complex. And that process could have driven further diversification. One argument for what's changed is that actually the arrival of animals completely reinvented the ocean ecosystems. Martin Smith is a researcher at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge. So once you get animals feeding on these tiny little algae and unicellular organisms... Um, they can start to sort of squash together lots of algae and compress them into faecal pellets and basically poo algal remains to the seafloor. So whereas algae would have sort of died and dissolved in the, near the surface of the ocean, now we're transporting lots of organic matter to the seabed. So that has two really revolutionary changes. Um, first of all, you're sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide was being sort of fixed by photosynthesis by these algae, then dissolving and re-released. Now we've got a huge store of carbon in the ocean sediments, taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere um, and locking it up in, in the sedimentary record. Um, that's going to change the, the atmospheric chemistry. The other effect that all this carbon, organic carbon on the seafloor is going to have is it's now a food source. It now means rather than a completely barren and empty seafloor, you've got the potential for animals like worms maybe to come along and start feeding on this organic matter on the seafloor. Once you've got a new food source, you've got great new opportunities and perhaps that contributed to this diversification of animal life. But this early life wasn't necessarily life as we would recognise it today. Alex Liu. In terms of their shapes, they do seem very different to anything we've seen before since... But saying that, some members of this large and diverse group do appear to possess traits and characteristics that make it seem that they might be animals. The possible tenophores that have been described from China, possible sponges from Australia. There are suggested echinoderms even from Australia again. But all of these possible animals come from younger deposits in the Ediacan, the latest Ediacan, around 555 million years ago. Everything before that is far more complicated and is much harder to link to known organisms. So by around 555 million years ago, there are potential signs of some organisms we may recognise today. But over the next few tens of millions of years, we start to see some even more weird and wonderful organisms appear in the fossil record during a period known as the Cambrian Explosion. We start to see the first evidence of complex burrowing behaviour and the first appearance of shells and spines.
a little bit after the Cambrian explosion, sort of 510 million years ago or so, we have these really exceptional fossil sites where sort of an entire ecosystem has, if you like, been mummified. And you see not just the bones, but you see all the soft parts. You see the eyes, the gills, the fins, um, you know, complete organisms. So, you know, it's sort of interesting to look at shells and bones, and that tells you something new has arrived on the scene. But what you're really interested in is what's underneath the shells, what's on top of the bones. Um, and that's what you start to see in these really exceptional fossil sites, such as the Burgess Shale. If you look at the complete animal communities that you've reconstructed, uh, you see a very complex community, almost as much sort of diversity and disparity as you see in modern animal communities. And these complex communities contained members of groups that we still see today. The mollusks, which include squid and snails, the arthropods, a group including crabs, lobsters and insects, and even some of our ancient relatives, ancestors of creatures with backbones. Martin Smith again. We're starting to recognise that the Cambrian explosion didn't stop at the end of the Cambrian period, that there is a lot of diversification in the next period on, the Ordovician period. Um, so this is maybe 60 million years after the start of the Cambrian. And it's the Ordovician when we really start to see the subgroups that we recognise today. So we have weird-looking mollusks in the Cambrian, we have more familiar-looking mollusks in the Ordovician, for example. You know, the Cambrian is a bit like sort of looking through blurry glass at modern life. The Ordovician is looking through a clear glass. Yeah, we look at an Ordovician sea and it, won't look, it doesn't look quite as alien as the Cambrian oceans were. But our next stop is not the Ordovician seas. Instead, we're jumping forward over 200 million years, past the evolution of the first sharks with their mysterious tooth whorls and head ornaments, past the appearance of ray-finned fish and the lobe-finned fish that travelled into freshwater and eventually onto the land, until we find ourselves in the Mesozoic, the time of the great ocean reptiles. If you were to dive into the sea during the Mesozoic, you'd probably see a whole range of um, invertebrates swimming around, including um, relatives of the squid today, like ammonites and belemnites swimming past you. On the seabed, you'd see things, familiar things, clams and mussels, maybe coral, some brachiopods, which are not very common today, but they were much more common back then. And you'd probably also chance a sighting of a marine reptile. Um, during the Mesozoic, there were about 18 different groups of, at least 18 different groups of marine reptiles that invaded the sea um, from all different areas of the reptile tree, and they're a really diverse group of animals. Hilary Ketchum from the University of Cambridge. By the start of the Mesozoic, around 250 million years ago, reptiles were already diversifying on land. It's known as the Age of Reptiles and includes the Triassic, Jurassic and Cretaceous periods when dinosaurs ruled the land. So what drove so many reptile groups back into the oceans? Following the Empermian mass extinction, there's very little in left in the water and about over 90% of all species, particularly in um, marine realm were badly hit by that um, extinction and this kind of left an open space for lots of reptiles to invade particularly when the sea level rose and increased productivity in the water. And one of those groups of marine reptiles that flourished was the ichthyosaurs. They're called ichthyosaurs because they, that means fish lizard um, but the early ichthyosaurs didn't really look that much like fish. Um, it, that name was based on the later ones from the sort of middle jurassic onwards um that they were first found by paleontologists they have a very fish-like body outline um, with a conical snout lots of conical teeth and a fish-like tail which propels them through the water but the earlier ichthyosaurs were much more eel-like in shape they were much more diverse some of them got up to 20 meters in length um, and these 
ichthyosaurs originated in the latest early Triassic, about 245 million years ago, at a time of really high sea level, when the sea invaded the continental shelf this provided a lot more productivity and sort of encouraged lots more reptiles to invade the sea and that's why we get so much diversification of marine reptiles during that period towards the end of, end of the triassic the sea level started to fall but by that time they'd evolved their their sort of typical fish-like body plan and were starting to invade the open oceans and that's probably what helped them survive the end triassic mass extinction which was caused we think by a marine regression so the sea levels fell um, but because they'd probably evolved this open ocean going body plan they'd managed to survive that however the ichthyosaurs and the other marine reptile groups including the long-necked plesiosaurs heavy-set pliosaurs and the mosasaurs were not so lucky towards the end of the mesozoic ichthyosaurs died out around 90 million years ago and it's not clear why though competition from certain types of shark could be to blame but almost all marine reptiles were wiped out at the end Cretaceous mass extinction 65 million years ago, the extinction that also put pay to the dinosaurs on land that was potentially caused by an asteroid impact. The only survivors of this once diverse marine reptile group live on today as sea turtles and crocodiles and their relatives. As on land, after the large reptiles were wiped out in the oceans, mammals filled some of the ecological niches left behind – so now we see killer whales and dolphins, where once we saw pliosaurs and ichthyosaurs. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. So, to recap our story so far, we've seen how life first began in the oceans in the form of microbes thriving on a planet very different from how it is now. Then three billion years later, an explosion of complex life, and we start to see the beginnings of animal groups that we see across the globe today. Jumping to the Mesozoic, we see some of the largest creatures ever to live in the oceans and then see almost all of them wiped out along with the dinosaurs. And now it's time to bring humans into the story and look at the history of our relationship with the marine realm. Well, we can certainly tell that Neanderthals, uh, perhaps as much as around 100,000 years ago, were exploiting some sea foods. Paul Pettit from the University of Sheffield. In Gibraltar, for example, we have two caves, Gorons Cave and Vanguard Cave, uh, where Neanderthals are not only carrying shellfish into these caves, but they're breaking them open in predictable ways by the edge of a fire and so on. So this is deliberate human consumption of these. And it's not just a case of finding debris such as shells in caves that gives us evidence that early human species were getting a taste for marine foods. Stable isotope studies have really matured over the last 15 years or so. And uh, the beautiful thing about human beings, of course, is that we are, to a large extent, what we eat. And therefore, our bones do carry a, an isotopic signature of where we're deriving at least our dietary protein from. And we now have a number of stable isotope analyses on human bones uh, back way into the, into the last 100,000 years of the Pleistocene, particularly for Neanderthals and for early members of our own species. And uh, what this tells us is that uh, marine food stuff was pretty much insignificant uh, for the Neanderthals. If they were eating it, it was probably when they happened to have a stroll on the beach and there was some shellfish around or a, a dolphin had just beached itself uh, and presented itself as, a, as an opportune uh, resource. 
But what they do tell us, by contrast, is that from at least 50,000 years ago, Homo sapiens were now incorporating quite large amounts of aquatic, that is riverine, and marine resources in the diet as well. So our stable isotope analyses of bone, the carbon and nitrogen in them, are you know, greatly complementary uh, to what we can see on archaeological sites. They do tell us that, uh, that fish is being procured in good numbers from 50,000 years ago. We may not see the means that those fish uh, are being procured by, uh, but they're, they're all ma- already making a decent you know, stamp on the diet. But even 50,000 years ago, when fish and shellfish started to form a significant contribution to the diet, it still wasn't fishing as we would understand it today. When we talk about a real marine economy, getting out in ships with nets that you you, you drag behind uh, the boats and so on and so forth uh, is really a much later thing. And we can count that, uh, you know, in a handful of thousands of years rather than tens of thousands of years. From a European perspective, we'd call it the, the Neolithic uh, or Bronze Age. And uh, you know, this develops as a series of island hoppings, if you like. This isn't open ocean uh, fishing of the like that we're used to. It's probably uh, exploiting marine resources while still in fairly easy contact uh, with the coast, probably in many cases still in sight of a coast of one form or another. However these foods were collected, it's clear that they were hugely important. Certainly, coastal resources seem to have been a critical part of the evolution of our own species. And uh, we have a number of sites, say, on the coast of South Africa uh, and on the Horn of Africa, too, that, uh, that reveal uh, our own species using shellfish, you know, 100, 130,000 years uh, ago. The important thing, uh, especially when we view this in its wider dietary context, this is the time when Homo sapiens begins broadening the, the spectrum of their diet in many ways not just using the coastal and marine realm and the riverine realm, uh, but also exploiting small animals, uh, things that move fast, don't repay you if you have have to actually chase them down and spear them, but do repay you very well if you're able to set traps you know, kind of sessile uh, ways of uh, obtaining them. So when we see this broad spectrum economy coming about, it's, it's very clear that our own species, at least, had reached some kind of dietary threshold in which they were far more resilient to ecological pressures, problems with the waxing and waning of resources in the landscape and so on. So the more elements in your diet, terrestrial or marine, makes you a a far better survivor, particularly in those unstable climatic and environmental oscillations of the late Ice Age. So our ancestors' ability to exploit a wide range of foods, including marine resources, undoubtedly contributed to their success and spread around the globe. That was Paul Pettit from the University of Sheffield. But humans have not only taken from the oceans. We've also been exploring them and charting them for thousands of years. One of the final realms to be explored was the deep sea. The practicalities of air supply and the huge pressures deep sea vessels have to withstand meant that the first major expeditions to the depths of the ocean only came about in the mid-20th century. The deep-sea submersible Alvin was one of the first vehicles used for such an expedition. 
The Alvin was commissioned in June of 1964 and made its first dive soon after that. Kurt Utes from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, where Alvin was developed. Uh, it was originally a vehicle that would go down 2,400 meters and take uh, three people, one, one pilot and two scientists or observers. So it's been operating for over 46 years and 4,664 dives. It still takes three people down, one pilot and two, two observers or scientists, uh, and we're extended its reach from 2,400 meters to 4,500 meters, and the project now is we're extending its reach down to 6,500 meters deep, which uh, at 6,500 meters, that's 98% of the ocean floor we'll be able to explore. And what's it like to undergo one of the dives? Well, cramped is probably the word. Whilst Alvin is around 7 metres, that's over 20 feet long, the sphere that carries the people is much smaller. The sphere is about 7 feet in diameter, and it's about half full of uh, electronics and oxygen bottles and CO2 removal equipment. And then there's uh, one pilot seat and two very low, long chairs along the very bottom of the sphere where the two scientists sit. And if you were going on a dive, uh, the, the next morning, we usually dive from 8 to 5. Uh, you'd get inside the, the vehicle through the hatch on the deck of the ship, uh, and then they close the hatch, and the crane lifts you into the water uh, in less than one minute, and you're released. You're completely independent of the ship. There's no tether line. And when they take you down, the pilot takes you down, Generally, the, the lights are turned off or down because they're, they're trying to uh, conserve energy on the batteries. And to get down to 4,500 meters is about two and a quarter hours. And after that two and a quarter hour descent, the team can expect to spend between five and six hours making observations through the tiny reinforced windows and taking samples using the manipulating arms. And it's that direct interaction with the deep-sea environment that Kurt believes makes Alvin so special. The benefit is uh, having a face-to-face -face interaction with the sea bottom. The benefit for science there is your perspective of what's going on. You could drive your vehicle by looking at a computer monitor, but looking out the windshield gives you a much better and safer perspective. Uh, and that's where the Alvin is, uh, being able to look out the windows or the, the viewports of the vehicle to exactly what, you're, what is on the bottom and you're seeing it with your own eyes gives you a better perspective. You can respond to what you uh, thought you wanted when you went down and now you see the real situation. It's a little bit different than looking at it on a, a two-dimensional uh, screen. Alvin has been instrumental in improving our understanding of deep-sea environments like the toxic yet incredibly diverse hydrothermal vent systems as well as taking one of the first trips to see the wreck of the Titanic. And Alvin also had a major part to play in our final milestone in the history of life in the oceans, the Census of Marine Life. The Census of Marine Life was the first cooperative global effort to assess everything that lives in the oceans, from microbes to mammals, from the, the mud and sediment in the seafloor up to the sea surface and even the seabirds, from the uh, tidal pools along the coast to the mid-ocean. That's Jesse Ossibel, one of the founders of the census. So what drove him and his partner in the census, Fred Grassley, to attempt such a huge project? 
there's tremendous concern in the oceans about uh, both about what's known and what's unknown. What's known keeps changing, of course, because the environment is always fluctuating, because fishing is removing life. Uh, but we also know that most of the ocean, maybe 90%, is really unexplored in a serious, careful way for marine life. So people had been talking about shifting baselines. Well, we know things were different in 1950 or 1850 or the year 1500. So the, the group of us, the core group of us said, well, maybe it's time for everybody all around the world to join together and really look in a big way, in an integrated way, in a cooperative way, using the newest technologies Let's really try for the first time to create global baselines for all species, for all regions. And uh, that was really our goal. Everybody said to us, you're crazy, but no one said, don't do it. Over 6,000 new species were described during the census. And the first official list of all known species in the ocean was made. A list with over 250,000 species on it, but that could be missing up to three times that number of species that we are yet to discover. There was also the discovery of an area in the Pacific just off the west coast of the United States, now dubbed the Blue Serengeti, essential for migrations of dozens of large ocean species. If you want to know more about some of the discoveries of the census, do check out our website where we have interviews from some of the researchers involved. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. So what has been done in the last two years with all of this information about the state of the oceans since the census was released? Most of the nations of the world uh, have signed a treaty called the Convention on Biodiversity that uh, keeps ratcheting up and, and introducing stronger measures for conservation of biodiversity. The work of the census provided the basis for the definition of areas that would be especially important to protect in the ocean, especially the high seas, the, the uh, ecologically and biologically significant areas, or EBSAs. And just a couple of weeks ago, at the big meeting of politicians and managers uh, involved with this the Global Convention on Biodiversity, a whole set of new marine areas were identified for protection. A step in the right direction for protecting the seas. So how does it feel after 10 years of hard work and the release of results that have changed our understanding of life in the oceans and are helping to shape our protection of it? Personally, for me, it was an incredible journey. Uh, I, I learned enormous amounts. Uh, I made many new friends, and I had great adventures on ice flows in the Arctic Ocean and at the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, but I think, I think the 2,700 people participating would tell you the same, that uh, working together cooperatively, uh, we all did something that none of us alone or in a small group could have done. Just the joy of discovery is immense, but then the fact that the, the knowledge is valuable and can uh, help life in the oceans, I think, is also at least as gratifying. Jesse Ossibel, one of the founders of the Census of Marine Life. And that's it for our journey through the history of life in our seas. We've heard about ancient microbes altering the atmosphere of the early Earth, Neanderthals breaking open shellfish by the fireside, and how global scientific collaboration can lead to extraordinary things. It just remains for me to say a huge thank you to Ken McNamara, Alex Liu and Martin Smith, Hilary Ketchum, Paul Pettit and Kurt Utes and Jesse Ossibel. If you want to find out more about any of their work, check out our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by The Naked Scientists 
and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.